This is the Education Gadfly Show. Amber, welcome to Team Tax and Spend. You know. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Dale Chu. Dale, welcome back to the show. Uh, great to be back. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, and as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Great to be here as always. Hey, you know, as Dale pointed out before the show, this is his second appearance in just a couple of months. Uh, that is an indication, Dale, that we want more Dale Chu around here. Hope this becomes a regular occurrence. Like David said, more cowbell, right? Give the people what they want. <laughs> exactly. Uh, might be dating ourselves with that reference. I'm not sure the youngins <laughs> get that one. We're go, dating go all of our listeners too, Mike. Well, that's true. I, I have no idea. Listeners, we have no idea. How old you are, who you are. We hope you're not robots. We're pretty sure you're not. We love right. both of you. <laughs> <laughs> Producer Tran doesn't know what we're talking about. Producer Tran, go Google Cowbell and Saturday Night Live. Promise it's hilarious. All right, but we have you on, Dale, not to talk about cowbells, but to talk about ringing the bell, ringing the alarm on the U.S. Department of Education over its testing waiver decisions. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Okay, Dale, well, you, I think, have been tracking this issue more closely than anyone out there, which is the decisions the U.S. Department of Education, really the Biden administration, is making when it comes to testing waivers uh, during this very crazy pandemic year. As we know, a few months ago, they came out and said, you know, we're not going to accept blanket waivers from testing. A lot of us testing and accountability hawks celebrated that. We were glad. We didn't know if it would go that way. Uh, but other people said, well, not so fast. Let's see the devil's in the details, especially when some uh, traditional education groups out there were happy with that decision as well, saying, well, that still leaves lots of flexibility. What do you think, Dale? Do we have some egg on our face, those of us that thought this was an indication that they were going to be uh, tough on testing? Yeah, I was cautiously optimistic, to tell you the truth, Mike, at the time. But, you know, now looking back on it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really been a mess when you look across the country. And just to set the table for folks who have not been tracking this issue very closely, but I think a lot of people will remember, you know, a little more than a year ago, former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos did grant blanket waivers, and that was totally understandable in the context of COVID. Um, but we know that sort of the anti-testing fervor predates the pandemic, right? And so this is why, for instance, last June, I think Georgia and Michigan were sort of neck and neck in terms of saying, we're going to apply for waivers from testing in spring of 2021, right? Like a full year. And we had no idea what was going to happen. And fast forward to February of this year, when the feds you know, justifiably said, we're not going to give blanket waivers. That was the official messaging that's what everyone had their eyes on. But as they've sort of been you know, issuing their verdicts over the course of the you know, last several weeks, what we've seen is them sort of, certainly there's no, I mean, from my, from my, my lights, no obvious rationale sort of to where they're rendering their decisions. And certainly the decision in Washington, D.C. to basically let them completely off the hook on testing is inexplicable to me. And Mike, you've brought this up many times. I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't have said, hey, D.C., you know what, we're not going to let you off the hook. But we're going to say, hey, try to test in the fall, which is actually what Maryland and Pennsylvania are doing. So, Right, right. So let, let's be clear about this. Well, Can we get a basic count, Mike, before we go any further? How many states are off the hook here? Well, really just D.C., but then you've got to get into the details. So far, it is only D.C. that has been told that you don't have to test at all. Again, which we thought a couple months ago that that, that was off the table, that everybody was going to have to test or at least right. try to do it. 
best they can. But they said to DC, well, because so many of your students are learning remotely in DC public schools or in the DC charter schools, you don't have to test at all in 2021. But again, I mean, we, we all assume that most, if not all of those kids are going to be back in school in August or September. So why not test them? So tell us, Dale, about some of the other ones, though, that have you scratching your heads, because there are others for sure. Yeah, so I mean, so I got into this into you know in the piece I most recently wrote for the Gadfly a week or so ago. But there's a bunch of them, right? I mean, certainly California is a state which has been super confusing. Without getting into all sort of the the, the drama back and forth, where it landed essentially was the federal position was so long as the state of California offers or provides the test of any of the thousand districts in California decides that it's not viable quote-unquote, viable to administer the test, they can pick something else. And so a great example of this is Los Angeles, right? Second largest district in the country that just announced they're not going to give the state test, right? Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> that is a shock. I didn't see that coming at all. No way. And uh, it's tough, too. If you go to the other side of the country, I mean, New York has, you know, they, they did not get a waiver, so they're going forward. But there's been a number of districts in that state that are flipping the script and saying that parents have to affirmatively opt in to take the test. So this is sort of like a flip on the opt out that happened five or six years ago. And then it's interesting, you know, just as a quick sidebar, um, success academies, right, which we're all big fans of, and, you know, Fordham's uh, Robert Panizio wrote an excellent book about it. I'm a huge admirer of Eva and what she's doing, but they announced pretty early they were going to opt out of the state exams. So I guess all that to say, folks are sort of all over the place. So even though DC is the only jurisdiction to officially be let off the hook. Um, it's a lot more messier than that. As we have been saying forever here on the show, it's understandable. It is really hard to test kids this spring, especially kids who are spending all of their time at home. The notion of getting them to come to school that they don't, you know, where the parents are nervous about having them leave their house only to test. Yeah, that, that's not going to happen. Right. And it, you know, we don't have a great way to make sure that tests given online at home are actually secure and valid and reliable, which is why I, and I know it's not a perfect solution, but I've been advocating forever test in the fall, test in the fall. And, and I still feel like, look, if we had just said, uh, you know, if, if you can't make it work this spring, because you're not in one of those states where basically everybody's back at it, uh, then save it till the fall and do it right. And instead, we're going to get this total patchwork. Uh, that's going to be, you know, really a, a waste of time and money. And, and, and that is a problem. That is a problem in that we're not going to know uh, where kids are against high standards with these quality assessments. And, you know, we're not going to have data that is going to allow us to get back to measuring student progress over time in a lot of these states. It's, it's a shame. It's a sham. It's an outrage. I mean, sort of, sort of what's tough about this, I mean, I try to put myself in, you know, Miguel Cardona's and company's shoes in terms of trying to do this. I mean, I appreciate the sentiment of trying to give some flexibility, right? But it gets messy super quickly. And so with the DC thing, you know, when that decision was made, um, I think a number of folks um, who are not, you know, not fans of testing quickly pointed to Michigan as an example, where, you know, this arguably sort of the, the, the worst situation when it comes to sort of increasing, you know, COVID you know, positivity at the moment, and Detroit in particular, right? They, they had to go back to remote learning, which they're in right now. Uh, and as I understand it, they're, they're tentatively scheduled to go back in person at the end of this month. But the superintendent there, Vidi, is still trying to, you know, he's not sure. And he's got to also test them too. I mean, like in a situation like that, you know, even someone who's such as, as diehard on testing as yours truly can be like, okay, I get providing slack there. But it's just, again, like I just... Yeah, it's hard to give an inch, right, Dale? I mean, I have a question. I mean, Mike, your point made, made me wonder, right? Is there any chance that we can just test the rest of the kids in the fall? 
I mean, it's probably a political ship that's sailed. But practically speaking, I, I don't really see why, you know, if we get 45% of kids, we can't, you know, first week of school, we come in, give the other 55% the test. Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting question. But, you know, what are the chances the states or districts are going to do that unless yeah. required to do that, right? 0.0%, but I'm just throwing <laughs> it out there, you know? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I don't know test security issues that worry that kids are going to know what's coming. I mean, these are low stakes tests for kids. No, I, I look, I, yeah, I, that all, that makes sense to me. From my vantage point, I mean, like it's almost like everything with the pandemic, there's no like great, perfect solution, right? Everyone's looking no. for the right solution and like fall testing. And I've, you know, I, I talked about this in my, in, in the piece that I wrote, I mean, fall testing does have its problems, right? If you sort of try to visualize learning loss, whatever your preferred term is, and if you think about sort of the end of the year, there's like a trough and theoretically in the fall, it comes back up again. Like you don't know exactly, you know, when you're testing in the fall, sort of where that's, and that creates some issues again, like not great, but certainly better than just putting our heads in the sand and saying, don't test at all. You know, but again, it's, it's, it's tough, but it seems like we could have done better given all we know in the moment. And, and I, like, I like David's creative thinking. I mean, look, maybe there's some way too to say, all right, the die is cast and a bunch of places aren't giving the state test, but they are giving, you know, some other test, the map, the iReady, uh, the Iowa basic, whatever. Can we get some smart people to figure out if you could use those as baseline scores for a growth measure going forward? I mean, I, I don't know. Better than nothing? I don't want to downplay the challenges associated with that, but it does not strike me as something that would be foolish to even attempt. I think there's some people who are smart enough that they could give that a shot. I have another question, Dale, which is what about sampling kids? Because that's another idea that I've heard, you know, that has been floated. And I seem to remember some state was going to do it, but then I'm, I'm out of date. Is anyone actually doing this? So the short answer to that is no, but Washington State, as I said also I, I, wrote, I wrote about, was proposing a, a sampling model. The proposal was to partner with the University of Washington, and then they were going to part, uh, sample 50,000 students out of the 700,000 students in the state who would take the test during a normal year. Long story short, the folks uh, uh, that are behind NAEP right, decided not to do NAEP this year because they felt like they couldn't sort of do a valid, you know, sample. And, you know, Nate, I mean, those guys, I mean, they've been doing right. this for years. They're experts, right? And so if they felt like they couldn't do it, like what are the chances that any state could do it in a short period of time? So the feds appropriately said no to, to that proposal. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Dale, for coming back on the show. Uh, this is probably something we're going to have to continue tracking. And again, uh, especially as we think about some solutions to this problem that now we're going to have, which is uh, millions of kids who will not have been tested this year at all. Dale Chu, Fordham Senior Visiting Fellow and an independent consultant on education programs and policy. Thanks, Dale. Come back soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Hey, have you been following all the football controversy this week? The real football, I know. I have been following some of it. It seems like there is a, a lot of brouhaha in Europe about this new league forming, and they don't yeah. like it a bit. The Super League, and now they're blaming America. They're like, this, is, this sounds like American-style billionaires and greed. And yeah, well, you know, they had a foundation in there that then that's all it took for the corporate takeover talk to begin. Yeah, but what, what do you think, David, as our football expert on the show here? 
you know, I am probably the only person on planet Earth who was very much in favor of the Super League. Probably not the way I would have designed it or, or, or marketed it, but it's gifted education, but for soccer players, right? What about our gifted <laughs> soccer players, Mike? What about the 0.01%? Uh, you're such an elitist, David. Such I am, to the core. I should also say, on the subject of anti-Americanism, I spent a year in England in grade school, and uh, it exists. <laughs> Yeah. They're, not, yeah. they're not wild about Americans. I don't know what it is. Something about us just rubs them the wrong way. Maybe it's the fact that they're- <laughs> Goes back uh, a long way. Constantly, uh, constantly inserting ourselves into their business and everyone else's, but- And, and not just that we were like, see ya, we're out of here. You know, I, I think you're right. I think it's, it's David's explanation. Well, I will say if, if we had a super league for our version of football, I do worry that the entire NFC East would get kicked out, Amber, uh, you know, <laughs> of the true. NFL, given that it's a pathetically bad uh, division. I know it's pitiful, but yeah. uh, hopefully, so, uh, hopefully we'll turn it around. All right. Okay. So what you got for us on the research front? Uh, I got a new study on an understudy topic. I love finding these topics nobody studies. So um, this one is on how investment in local public libraries impacts student achievement, among other outcomes. That is definitely not one that is uh, not studied. It's the public libraries. And oh my gosh, you guys, uh, I won't go into that, but we had a local library at the entrance to my neighborhood as a kid. Brought back some, some great fond memories of local libraries. But anyway, there are apparently... 15,500 local branch libraries across the United States as of 2018. Children checked out more than 750 million items and attended library events more than 80 million times at libraries nationwide. Yet we don't have any research on the effects of local libraries. So in, in comes a trio of economists, of course, to save the day. They study how capital investments in public libraries in particular affect library operations, patron usage, housing prices, and student achievement. They collect spending, revenue, and usage data from the Institute of Museum and Library Services Public Library Survey. Very high response rates, 98%, I think, was the last year. So uh, this is great coverage from local libraries. They zero in on a specific type of revenue, mainly capital spending on major renovations. These are typically one-time projects that add to the fixed assets of the library. And they also look at new library buildings that have been pretty much completely revamped. They link these data to district-level test scores from the Stanford Education Data Archive, or affectionately known as CEDA dataset, and also to zip code-level housing prices from Zillow. They analyze library spending shocks from 2009 to 2018, where they can align the library and CETA data. Shocks are defined as a $1,000 or greater increase in per-student capital spending at libraries within five miles of the school district. Using that definition, 10% of all districts in the sample experience a shock between 2010 and 2017. They use both a difference and difference design and event study. As for the diff and diff, they're able to verify that outcome trends leading up to the treatment are parallel across treatment and control and that observable characteristics were parallel. Key findings, capital library investment means patrons use the library more. (laughs) Doesn't seem totally surprising. Including total library visits and item checkout. In particular, they find a sharp and persistent 30% increase in child library use that persists for 10 years after the capital investment. 
as well as increases in the number of books, number of employees, and total operating expenditures after this capital shock. They also find that after the capital investment, there are gradual increases in reading test scores. On average, they increase by approximately 0.02 standard deviation with the largest effects, that's around 0.04, 0.05 standard deviation increase emerging later in the study window. These increases do correspond to increases in library use following these capital expenditures. And importantly, they are not driven by changing demographics in the local communities, other government spending, or local policies the best that they can tell. And there are no increases in math and housing prices also do not change. The subgroup analyses. All right, lots of hemming and hawing, frankly, about this because they're imprecisely estimated. They explain why these estimates aren't that great. But anyhow, bottom line, their best estimates suggest that the positive reading effects may be driven by white and Hispanic students. Then they look at SES and they show similar patterns for both disadvantaged and non-disadvantaged kids with larger positive estimates for the non-disadvantaged kids. They find no difference, no big differences rather by age group, which was sort of surprising for me. Next, they do some other digging in. They find that the reading test score effects are largest in the smallest school districts, consistent with the notion that kids in these smaller districts are more likely to live only near one library. So perhaps they're more affected by a given per capita library shock. Finally, I mean, they do all kinds of stuff in this paper. (laughs) Finally, they find that the results are driven by districts that have moderate and lower amounts of school level capital spending, with the largest effects in districts that spend the least on capital expenditures at the school level. That's pretty much it. So obviously you want to hear what you guys say, but brought back great memories as a kid. I you know, my sister used to walk up there almost every week, check out a new book and take part in the summer readathon. But anyway, I digress. I know, I know what I have to say, Mike. Amber, welcome to Team Tax and Spend. You know, <laughs> <laughs> never fail to surprise me with your choices. I love local. I'm sorry. I love local libraries. I do. Yeah. 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 Well, me too. We're on the same team. We love the libraries. You know, but that is that is a good point. David, and of course, this does point out whenever you do, you got to get people to do those tax and spending exercises where they say, okay, if you want to cut things, what do you actually want to cut? And uh, maybe it's hard to identify things. Uh, Libraries would not be on the list. It's all interesting. Let me ask a little bit about the findings. First of all, on age, I mean, let's keep in mind the CETA data are just third through eighth grade. Or eight. That's right. I should have said that. All right. So we're not talking, so certainly not high school kids that are driving. Even though, yeah. My experience is that high school kids like to go to libraries to study, but you know, but but that's may not. We we just don't know. We don't have the data there. Second is, can we say again how much we love the CETA data? I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> Sean Reardon and and Andrew Ho and company and funders of that project. Amen. We are using it at Fordham, and we're so glad to see other people using it. Yeah. And yeah. then uh, on the demographic stuff, do we know anything about library usage uh, by those different demographic groups? Does yeah, they, they did not have that in there. They just had a couple throwaway sentences that obviously they, they cited some other study that more advantaged areas tend to use libraries more, yeah. but they didn't and, dig into that. No. You can imagine a million reasons for that. I mean, transportation is probably a, a, a big one. There's yeah, just exactly. a lot of places where you'd have to really work hard to get to a library on the bus and, uh, you know, it, it's much easier when you have a car. So I don't yeah. know. I, I would imagine. Right. That, five that, miles is still five miles. Yeah, I'm curious to know how much of the effect persists if you simply remove the books from the library. You know, a significant amount of what I comes to mind when I hear the word library is a quiet space. 
mm-hmm. a safe space. Like Mike says, there are lots of kids just go to study there. They don't read the books, right? It's just you, you pick a quiet corner and it's sort of the ambiance, you know, convinces you to be your best self instead of doing whatever you would otherwise be doing. But, but I don't think that's happening for younger kids as much. Right. And it's, we're looking at reading outcomes, Amber, or also math. Yeah, they looked at math and they didn't find any difference. So see, David, the books matter. Come on. Well, so, I mean, James is still too young, Mike, but I'm just curious. I mean, do you, prior to COVID, I mean, were you, did you take your kids to the library or drop them yeah, off? When, when they were younger, yeah. I mean, it's definitely felt like something that was, that peaked for us when they were probably in preschool into early elementary, partly because that's when they're just making incredible progress on reading and flying through books. And uh, there's also story times and there's just, you know, it's, and you're desperate to find things to do with your kids when they're that, that age and waking right. up at 5 a.m. So anyways, yes. There's not an out and out childcare component to this, right? I mean, I, my sense is that there's programming, but you can't necessarily drop your kid off usually, right? I don't think I, so. I mean, you could try. <laughs> Here's the reading circle. See ya. <laughs> I mean, and, and if you don't count having your kid's nanny take them to the library in communities where that is uh, happens. Um, but, but don't you think, David, I mean, it's the books, but it's not the books in that it's also an indication is saying, hey, we value reading. We are going it's to the, the library. Smell of the books. Right. The smell of the books. Right. To the library. It's a great place. It's a community yeah. institution. We don't have that many anymore, you know, mm-hmm. where people in the community can congregate and go and feel like, you know, this is our local spot. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like there's, there's that angle as well. It does raise the question for me too. I mean, without wandering too far off into social policy, I guess what else we can do at the community level outside of school to just mm-hmm. promote, you know, are there sort of, I don't want to call it low cost because it probably isn't, but are, you know, what's the infrastructure of learning at the community? Oh, yeah. No, there's a whole bunch of, you know, a whole bunch of people that worry about out of school time, you know, whether that means boys and girls clubs and YMCAs or stuff online or the very small federal investment in PBS kids that can have a big impact on student right. learning. Why can't we have broadband in every community in America and, you know, there's like kids broadband and you get yes right. for kids onto your phone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. There you go. I'm a dreamer, Mike. Go, go, David. Tax it and spend it. You got it. And, and of course, there's just the idea of just giving poor families money, which uh, we know has an impact on student achievement as well, and which we are going to experiment with over the next year. Uh, we are. We are indeed. All right. Let's leave it there. Cool stuff, Amber. Thank you. Nice to go a little beyond schools. And again, nice to find that libraries have some strong evidence of effectiveness. Go libraries. All right. That's all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.